Peter was reminding the church of the church uh, of the truth they had been firmly established in. That is, the prophecies uh, by the prophets of the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ, the uh, commandments of Jesus Christ given to the apostles that the church is, is now to uh, lovingly obey the Lord in. And now Peter, an aging man, he's going to soon be martyred under Nero. He's going to lose his life shortly after the writing of this. And his concern is that after he dies, that the church would be able to withstand the attacks that Satan was going to bring on the church. He had tried outward persecution, and now Satan is going to try to undermine the church inwardly through false teachers. And so Peter reminds, first of all, the church of truth, but Peter also reminds the church of how that truth came to them, that it is totally reliable. First of all, Peter, in contrast to the false teachers that they're just about to hear, uh, they're just about to experience, Peter was actually a true apostle. They weren't making stuff up. They were actually eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so in verses 16 through 18, Peter tells of how he, James, and John saw Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus transfigured in all of his glory, which is recorded in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so Peter says, starting in verse 16 through 18, just by way of review, for he did not follow cleverly, we did not follow cleverly divide stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from heaven from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter is saying, hey, we saw Christ. We saw him in his glory. This isn't a cleverly devised story uh, like, the te- the, like the teachers you will hear shortly with all their sensationalism, but but Peter says, this, even though I saw this vision with, with, with my brothers there, this doesn't validate the truth. And that's his point. It doesn't validate the truth. Yes, it was true. I saw it and all those things. But he goes on. He says, and this is important, Peter's experience was valid. It was true. He was an apostle, but that isn't alone what the church was to rely upon. Because these other people would be coming in saying, hey, listen, I've got a vision too right? And so what does he refer them back to? Verse 19, he says, we also have the prophetic message. Not only did I, was I there, not only was I, I, I saw and I witnessed this with other, other men, but we have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. And now he waxes poetic as to light shining in a dark place until the, da- the day dawns and the morning rise, star rises in your hearts. Peter says that we have the prophetic message. That word message is is logos, uh, as we talked about last week, which is the word. We have the prophetic word, and it's something completely reliable. The word of God is completely reliable, Peter says, and that is Peter's standard for truth, church, the prophetic word of God. Peter says, listen, we saw Christ transformed, but don't just rely on our vision. Test it against what the prophet said. Is that truly what the prophets spoke about? And the apostles and countless others, they were witnesses, witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were given sometimes hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, 700 years before, 1,500 years. Read the prophecies and see 
if what the eyewitnesses said added up to what they said. And that's the thing about our faith. It is verifiable. I love that. Read the prophecies and see what the witnesses saw and add it up. Peter says, pay attention to it. And that's what the gospel accounts are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you get those first four books of the New Testament, if, if you read them, you can just see. They're, all they're doing is they're going back and saying what the prophets did and how Jesus fulfilled it. What the prophets did Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled it. They just keep going back to the Old Testament saying, look, see, look, see, look, see. What, they're just connecting all these things. If you open Luke's gospel just to the very beginning, and you can read this later for homework, Luke says... Many have undertaken to draw up account of the things you have, that have been fulfilled among us. The, the apostles had been dying off, and there were very few left, and so very few eyewitnesses. And so Luke, sensing that these actual eyewitnesses of the, the fulfillments of the prophecies were dying off, he wanted to preserve what was happening. How do you preserve it? We record it. And that was, that was what was going in their own words. And so he says, many of us have undertaken to drop an account of the things which have been filled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those uh, whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That's the apostles. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus some guy he's writing to, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught concerning Jesus Christ. Prophecy was fulfilled by Christ. Eyewitnesses witnessed it. They saw it happen, and Luke and the other gospel writers recorded those eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts for you and I, and by God's sovereign hand, they have been preserved through the ages so that we would know with certainty the things that have been taught. And what has crept up over the last couple hundred years, actually since the very beginning when Satan said, did God really say, the first words out of Satan's mouth, by the way, has been the relentless attack upon the validity of the Word of God. 24,000 manuscripts of scriptures Reliable manuscripts of scriptures, more than any other ancient text that we have, more than Homer's Iliad, way, dating way earlier than Homer's Iliad, all this type of stuff, yet we never doubt the validity of Homer's Iliad, do we? No, it's been changed over the years. People have meddled with it. Interesting, the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1948, shepherd boy there hanging out in Israel or Palestine at the time, throw, throwing rocks in the desert because that's what you do. And it hits, goes through a cave, and he hears a clink, and all of a sudden there's this pottery. He goes in, finds what would be the Dead Sea Scrolls. The earliest manuscripts we had were a thousand years later. And so obviously, if there had been a thousand years difference between those ones and the ones that we had had, there would be great differences. There weren't. Thousand years difference, same scriptures. And obviously, you can get into the details of the meticulousness of those who recorded those things. But Peter wants us to know that they certainly can be totally relied upon. What the prophets predicted, he's going to contrast that with false prophets, starting in verse 20, which is where we are. Above all, he says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. 
So Peter is describing how the prophecies about the Messiah came about, how we received the truth, about how we can rely upon them. Peter says, first, you have to understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the own prophet's interpretation of things. In other words, well, what does that mean? So the phrase came about, it means came into being, originated. That's very important to know. Uh, so Peter's saying the prophetic scriptures never originated from the prophets. They weren't the source of the prophecies. That's very important to know. Well, did they write that down? Yes. But they were not the author that it was where the prophecies did not originate. They were not the originators. And Peter's going to contrast that with the false prophets who originate their own prophecies. One prophecy directs people towards God. One prophecy directs people towards themselves. And those are the two paradigms that we're dealing with now with false teaching. So Peter's saying prophecies in scriptures, they never originated with the prophets. Verse 21, for Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I like what John MacArthur said on this, what human beings want or desire or think had nothing to do with divine prophecy. And when you think about it, it's true. Why would we ever call people to repentance and belief when we ourselves are the ones at fault? It's interesting. So prophecy didn't originate with human will, but rather the prophets, though humans, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is important. If you ever take a a theology uh, course, you're going to be introduced to the authority, the inspiration, um, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture. And these are fascinating uh, subjects and it gets pretty deep as men try to understand uh, how all of this this transfer happened. But Peter is saying simply that God is the author of Scripture. It came from His will. The Scriptures were inspired by God. They were God breathed, as Paul put it to Timothy in Second Timothy three sixteen. But how did the Scriptures get from Him to us? It says that they were through humans by the Holy Spirit as He carried them along, and that's important. The term carried, how many of you have made in your, in your translation? Some of you have made. It says they were carried or made. Um, that means to be continually carried. And the idea, uh, Luke uses it a couple times in Acts to describe how ships were carried along. They were carried along by wind. They were, their sails were filled up and they were pushed to the desired de- destination. And God... What God filled the sails of ordinary men, so to speak, and, dis- and, and divinely inspired them so that though they were human vessels, they were writing in their own personalities, they were writing in their own, um, in their own styles, as you can see. You can actually, if you read the Bible, you can see that there are different people writing this. You can see their personalities jump out. You can see the difference between Peter and Jude. You can see these differences, even though they're talking about the same thing. What's percolating in their heart, what the Holy Spirit is, is impressing upon them. And so Peter says, listen, God, he filled the sails of these, of these men divinely so that through them, they pinned exactly what God desired, the infallible Word of God. Infallible meaning that it is absolutely accurate concerning truth. The Bible is true 
about everything it reveals about truth. And so Peter says, listen, we have the scriptures. They're totally reliable. The prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ. We witness them. Those prophecies are from God. They're not from the hearts of men. They were actually true prophets. Chapter 5, verse 1. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. We've got a shift here, and now it gets dark. The origin of true prophecy, church, is from God, not men. And this is where Peter is heading, that the church is going to have men and women in it who will teach things that do not originate from the Lord, but rather from the wicked heart of men under the guides of religion. And so Peter says, just as there were false prophets back then, there's going to be false prophets among you. And by the way, that is where false teachers hang out among you. That's what Peter wants them to know. That is where false teachers hang out. They hang out among the people. And they operate through stealth, through secrecy. They don't operate in the light, at least in the church Peter was writing to. They will, and Peter says in the middle of verse 1 there, they will secretly introduce, and this is what prophets do, false prophets do, they secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. The word secretly, as you can guess, means to creep in. You can imagine a church taught by Peter is not going to tolerate a heretic, Right? I mean, the apostles, he says, you guys are already firmly established in the truth. They are not going to tolerate a heretic. And so heretics have to creep in. Amen? Really, this this word picture that Peter is using is, is someone sneaking in under false pretenses. It's like, it's like a, a, someone who's, who's trying to fool a judge. Or that of a criminally secret, uh, a criminal secretly returning from a place he was banished. Really interesting. But the reason they sneak in is because what they are teaching is counter to the truth of the gospel and the kingdom that Peter and the apostles delivered to the church. False teachers are going to teach you things that are counter to the truth. And so guess what they're probably going to be avoiding a little bit? The truth. It's very interesting. They're motivated by the flesh and influenced by the enemy and are secretly introducing twisted forms of truth that lead people into license of sin, not liberty from it. And so I don't think... This is interesting. Peter says that they, they are secretive in their heresy, even denying the Lord who, who bought them. And there's a lot of controversy because I think if you, as you look at this thing, yeah, is it, what is that flying around? Yellow jacket? Someone want to be a sacrificial lamb? <laughs> Not so secret, was he? <laughs> All right. That's what happens to false teachers. That's where, he, that's where Peter's going. Thank you, Lord. 
Peter says that, that they're secretive in their heresy, even denying the sovereign Lord about them. You know, there's, there's thoughts that this is people losing their salvation. I, I, I just tend to not look at that that way. Uh, you, can, you can continue to read. Some of your says, uh, with his blood, that's not in the original there. So I don't think this is speaking of them losing their salvation. I think this is speaking of a master who has a servant in, in, this kind of, in his house who is on the outside portrays himself as a servant, but inwardly he's undermining the authority of the house. And I tend to think that's, that's kind of the idea. He seeks to undermine the master and everything that's in his house while outwardly doing his duty, showing the jobs, all those types of things. And how many of you have, have, have had employees like that or have worked with employees like that? Don't raise your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Gotcha. How many of you are that employee? No, it's good. No. And that is what false teachers are like. Outwardly, they might say all the Christian things, right? They might confess Jesus as Lord and all this type of stuff. They may affirm the right doctrine, but they absolutely deny Jesus when it comes to Him being Lord. And by their actions, they teach others to do so. Jesus had so much to say on this in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 7 Verses 15 through 23, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? The answer is what? Maybe. No. No. The answer is no. Or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus is saying it several different ways. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. That's how you recognize a false teacher, not what they say, what they do, how they act. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so these teachers deny the Lord not by what they profess, but by what they practice. And then they secretly profess those things that are heretical. Back to verse 2, and here's the sad thing. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of the truth into disrepute. It's sad to say, but Peter says that many will follow them. Many will follow them. These guys and gals aren't teaching self-denial. They are teaching self-indulgence. That is the root of what the teaching is. And they use religion as a way to cloak this self-willed teaching. Many will follow, Peter says, Jesus warned, again, back in Matthew 7, he's in that context. Jesus says, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, he says, Enter in through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Beware of false prophets. And he goes on. Peter says the result of the heresy is that people follow these false teachers' conduct, their lifestyles, their philosophies, they mimic them. Peter says that their conduct is depraved. One of the marks of a false teacher is depraved conduct. Some of your translations say, uh, follow their sensuality. 
So there's, there's a sexual lewdness and debauchery in Peter's mind about these, um, these false teachers, and people follow suit. This is getting worse in the church. As the truth is being compromised and increasingly corrupt, uh, corrupted by society or in society, so much so now that we no longer have secret false teachers, we have entire denominations devoted to openly, adamantly heretical teaching, bringing the name of the way through disrepute. We are supposed... uh, We're supposed to be teachers of the truth, bringing people to the light. And yet, if if I want to have what I want, I will tell you what you want to hear, and then I will fleece you for it. Right? Marcus uh, sent me an an article. There's there's articles in, in, in the UV. How many of you read about... Uh, the pastor from Pioneer Methodist Church in town. You know, in the name of standing with the oppressed, the marginalized and hurting, which we should, is leading your congregation to openly and unashamedly support LGBTQIA plus lifestyles and leading her congregation to support part of their denomination's attempt to instate homosexual clergy and to perform same-sex marriages. Why would a leader of a church knowingly lead people to celebrate and embrace those evil desires that Jesus died to save us from? And that's just one example close to home, right? But make, make no mistake, and I want to make this clear, Jesus absolutely is and was, was and is a friend of sinners. Amen? Praise God for His mercy of whom I am chief. And many of us know and have struggled with so much and God is so merciful to us and we want people to repent. But Jesus calls sinner to repentance. He didn't hang out with prostitutes and then start a prostitution ring. That is what's happening. We've, we've, we've messed up our thinking in the church. He calls people to himself to cleanse them, to cleanse us. We're all broken, totally broken, amen? But I don't start to take people in adultery and say, come be a pastor. You know, or people who are totally just, you know, they're just lost. Great people, love their personalities, all that stuff, but just like all of us, we're totally lost. No repentance whatsoever. Don't take those people and put them in a pulpit or sit there and condone this in the name of acceptance. That is totally anti-Christ. And it is not a lack of love to say no. It is actually unloving to lead people off the cliff. And I think the Lord's heart breaks and he's, he's, he's broken for those people 
that we would be people who wouldn't go with the culture, that would stand in the gap, that would be ones who were able to preach the gospel in gentleness and respect and in love and call people to repentance, just as the Lord did with us, amen? And by the way, that's sometimes a long process. Anyone else? Thankful for His mercy. But don't blur the lines. Make it clear. When people follow after these false teachers and their depraved conduct, Peter says, the way of truth is put in disrepute. It's maligned. This means it's blasphemed. It's blurred. I like what John MacArthur said on this. He said, when unbelievers associate with the conduct of false teachers with the practice of the church, the name of Jesus is inevitably defamed. When they associate the conduct with truth, the name of Jesus is profane. We've got to understand that Jesus is absolutely holy. And yet His holiness came down to our absolute sinfulness, which is the miracle. Not so that we could stay in it, but so that we could partake in His divine nature, not Him and ours. Well, that's part, He came in, but you know what I'm saying. Peter warns that the motive for the false teachers that they would be, the church would be facing, it's greed. There's a selfish desire in there. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. How many of you have watched TBN for 15 minutes or televangelist type of things? It, within a few minutes, you are going to hear an absolutely sen- absolute sensational story of miraculous proportions, and those stories always end with a miraculous transfer from one bank account to another. Do they not? They play upon emotions. They play upon people who are in absolute need, who are hurting, who are marginalized, who are broken, and they play upon them so that if they go ahead and now, in faith, give this money to my ministry so I can have a new Learjet, then God will have His blessings upon you. You will have material wealth. You will have restored health, you will have relationships. And under the cloak of you having your best life now, they become rich. Or they gain fame. And all these types of things. Listen, church, stay away from that. You already have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, they are yours in Him. They're already there. You're already seated with Him. Do you know that? I can't give you anything. I'm simply telling you who who you are in Him, pointing you to the truth of what He's already done and already said. This is not a pain-free life. Stop pretending like it is. John 16, Jesus said, and here's a promise we can underline, 
in this world you will have trouble. Tribulation is the word. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the age of the cross, church, of following Jesus into his suffering and in that the joy of identifying with him in it and the age to come, which is glory. Amen? Who wants to hear that God will be more glorified through your weakness than in your strength? And if God decides to heal you, praise God. Amen? And I think he does do those works. But most likely, he's going to allow you to suffer like his son whom he loved. And so now, you follow Jesus and you deny yourself. Because faith is what is being produced through suffering. Now at this point, if you feel an overwhelming urge to give a donation, go ahead. <laughs> but, Peter, but Peter warns that the motive for false teachers is greed. Amen? And now Peter, through verse 10, speaks of the judgments that awaits them. And this is the whole chapter two, guys. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get through this as quick as possible because it's not the funnest thing. Not that we do fun, but Peter leaves three precedents. He's saying, listen, this is what happened then, and this is what awaits the false teachers to come. And by the way, this is what ha- how God saved people, and this is what's happening to those who are righteous. And so Peter gives three. First, but first he says, their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. The word condemnation, destruction is riddled in chapter two. This is what it's about. And God's saving us out. Just because God has not struck them down right away does not mean their judgment is not coming. It is. Now here in verse four, he starts with those three examples of judgment from the Old Testament. For God, uh, verse four, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And by the way, this is a run-on sentence. I'm just breaking it up because it goes on for a long time. So the first example is the angels. And it said, notice the angels he did not spare. He sent them to hell when they sinned. Example one. The angels here are probably the angels from Genesis 6 who left to their first estate, intermarried with humans when they shouldn't have. Jude speaks about it in the next, in the next book over there in verse 6. He only has one chapter. And the angels, it says, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on the great day. So there's Jude for you. So God judges the angels when they sin. Secondly, verse 5, if he did not spare the innocent world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, notice the word ungodly, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness in seven others. And so the second example Peter gives here is the ungodly that were judged by the flood during the time of Noah. But did you notice, praise the Lord, that God protected Noah? Amen? Hallelujah. A preacher of righteousness and seven others. That's what set him apart. They entered the ark. They were safe. Praise the Lord, the rest of the world was destroyed. This is the image that Peter's using. So we see God judging the wicked and saving the righteous from judgment. Then thirdly, verses six through eight, if he 
condemns the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, pause, if you remember from Genesis 18 and 19, the city of Sodom that Lot lived in, that is Abraham's nephew, was full of sin so grievous that the Lord had heard and he had to come down and see if it was so and he ended up judging it. Abraham intercedes for the city, he says, will you spare it if there's this many righteous? And he goes all the way down from 50 down to whatever it is, 10, 20. And there weren't that many. And Abraham was thinking of Lot. And part of that depravity was seen when homosexual men attempted to rape angels who came there to rescue Lot and enact judgment upon the cities of the plain. And so God judges the cities of the plain there and incinerates those places. And, but in verse 7, it says that God rescued Lot, a righteous man. How many of you have read the Genesis account of Lot? I'm missing information. <laughs> Praise God that Peter's an apostle. Now, I've read this story, and I really didn't get that. I didn't get that Lot was righteous. He made some pretty bad decisions, and he ended taking his family to live in Sodom because he went after greener pastures, not wider, wiser decisions. And then... When those angels come and those guys are wanting to rape the angels, he offers his daughters to them instead. But the angels intervened, blinding the people of that city, sparing. And there's more to it. It gets worse. As you have the Edomites and... I'm sorry... Moabites and the yeah Moabites and the other guys that yeah the, the descendants of Lot are from Lot and his daughters. They took advantage of him. The city that they lived in obviously rubbed off on them. But I'm so thankful that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Lot righteous here. How many of you have lived absolutely perfect and spotless lives? Not me. He gives us some insight into what was going on in Lot's heart. Peter says in verse 7 and 8 that Lot was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That is the effect that darkness has on righteousness, it vexes us. When a person has been born again, what happens to our soul? We become sensitized to the things that break God's heart. Amen? Lot, for all his faults and horrible decisions, was righteous. The ungodly aren't concerned with any of those things that burden Lot. They aren't concerned with the lost. And perhaps that's why we see when we read that, that Lot was actually in the gate of the city. 
when the angels came, or I think that's when it was. That was a position of leadership, a position of eldership. It could possibly be that Lot was trying to influence the city for good, for righteousness. Who knows? But Peter calls Lot righteous. I am so thankful that in Christ Jesus, I am accounted, I'm counted as righteous. You too. Through faith in Jesus, you have his righteousness imputed to you. And therefore, when God sees those who have repented and believed in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness. I love that. God saves the righteous. That is, that those who have been made righteous through faith in Christ and who now live righteously because of that. You see how we, we warp? Our society warps what really should be? That somehow being saved from it is, is, is like a legalistic thing? Being saved from sin, being repulsed by it, trying to, being vexed in your heart over it, and somehow, you know, compassion and all these types of things is supposed to negate that? It's like, no, Jude speaks about this. Absolutely. Compassion leads us to reach out with the gospel and saying, I, was, I, I escaped from the flames through Christ by grace, totally by grace. Nothing I've done. Man, He is so gracious and merciful to me. I deserve none of this. You're headed for that place. Jesus saves we don't sit there and say, yeah, what you're doing is fine. We don't, no. And we're not judging. We're saying this is where we're going. This is what it is. Come out. And the Holy Spirit does the work. God saves the righteous who have been made righteous through faith in Christ. And that is what the gospel is, that we who were as ungodly as ungodly can be could be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is our ark of salvation. He is the one leading us out of the city that is going to be destroyed. He died for our sins. His blood covers our sins. He took our sins and gave us His righteousness in return. He rose again so that we would not face this wrath coming upon the corruption of this world caused by evil desires that we have escaped, Peter says. As Peter says in verse 9, if this is so, if this is what God did in the past, these three examples of judgment and, and of saving, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteousness for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh. Notice, not many were saved. The way is narrow. The way is Jesus Christ, but his arms are absolutely open wide that whoever would believe upon him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Amen. The hope, the absolute hope of Jesus Christ. And we are the church of God. We are the redeemed who have escaped the flames because of his righteousness. And now we call out into the, the broken world and wherever we are around us with the gospel, with the hope, with the promise of salvation through repentance and faith. 
God's grace is overwhelmingly sufficient in Christ to cleanse us and forgive us of all those things, to change us and to sustain us and to save us totally until that day we see Him face to face. But the end of those who have rejected Christ, His salvation and His lordship, it is judgment. Peter says in verse 10, this is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Listen, the result of what false teachers teach is all about self. It is not about submission. And we're in a generation that is totally about self. And let me tell you, it is much easier to preach self from the pulpit than it is denial of self in a generation that says, don't tell me what to do. I am my own authority. And so it is so easy to tell you, you know, whatever you want. And here we go. And here's how to make the Bible make your life be what it should be. Instead of, no, this is not about you primarily. It's about His glory and how your life was made according to His will. So it's totally different. Instead of getting people to see that, man, we are saved out. We run to Christ. Now it's, Lord, what do you want? Instead of, um, yeah, save me. And by the way, I would like these things. This is, this is where I'm going. Now, we have conversations with the Lord as the saved, right? Amen? We're not... But it's always, ultimately, Lord, if your will be done, whatever your will is, Lord, help me in these situations. Is this what you want? This is where we're going. Does this honor you? Does this please you? Does this glorify you? And this is the result of what happens to those false teachers is, ultimately, they, they despise authority. They teach it. They model it. And... Well, they, they face judgment. Next week, Peter has more to say on the subject, but for now, we rejoice in such a great salvation that we have been given an opportunity to run into the ark of Christ. Amen? And that the door is still open. The door is still open, and his arms are wide. And he sends his church into the world to call, to call, come, come, come. And I think of the parables, that those who should have come and don't, God says, you'll never enter. But then he goes to the highways and the byways. He goes to the rejects of society. He goes to the broken. He goes to those prostitutes. He goes to the LGBTQ plus community. He goes to pharisaical <laughs> pastors or whatever it might be, and he says, come. Come. Repent. And his arms are open wide. But few come. Because you must lose your life. And that's what the cross is. It's death to self, finding your life in Christ. Perhaps you've been living your Christian life all these, these years and you realize on the outside, I am that servant, but on the inside, I am not. Today is the day. Come to your master. 
and he will lovingly put his cloak of righteousness around you. And he has slaughtered the calf for the wayward son, for the wayward daughter. The provision has been made, the blood has been spilled, the sin has been paid, and he desires you to come home. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, how merciful and gracious you are, Father, that you sent your only Son to save us. And how you've been so kind to us to illuminate our souls with words from your throne that we would be among those who are spared. That we would be given everlasting life by grace through faith in Jesus. Lord, whatever storms we have, they really pale in comparison to the great storm that is coming that we've been saved from. And so, Father, we, we just worship you now in reverence. And we desire that this coming week we would walk worthy of the calling we have received, that we would be a light to the world around us, a lighthouse warning those around us, but also directing people into the harbor of your saving grace. And so, Father, please keep us as we await the return of the King. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you today. And we also want to thank you as we gather in your name to fellowship together, that we would be mindful of you and your provision in every way. The provision not only of food, Lord, which we're thankful for, but the fellowship that we have, the family we have in Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would add to this kingdom that you have built, Lord, that you would use us, that we'd be uncompromising in our hearts and our lives, that we would be unhypocritical, Lord. So do a deep work in us. There's people who need your love, Lord, who need your gospel, who are your Holy Spirit has been prompting and Lord, help us to lose ourselves that they might live and to reach out with the truth in love. May your will be done. We bless you. In the name of Jesus, amen.